Indian Lake. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Thursday, September 8th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A controversy that's rocking in North Country Church is raising questions about the role of clergy in reporting abuse. Former members of the Christian Fellowship Center, CFC, staged a protest recently outside the CFC Church in Potsdam. I grew up in this community. It's a homeschool community where we don't often see doctors. Our teachers are our parents. You look at it that way. A pastor is the one of the only authority figures that could possibly notice abuse and report it. An expanded federal visa program will make it easier for North Country hospitals to find needed doctors. When we're uh, entertaining candidates, again, we're very strategic as to which one, which which positions we will consider that type of visa. So going forward, we will be able to consider them in many positions, not just one. Governor Kathy Hochul dropped the COVID mask mandate on public transportation in New York. And the North Country's two congressional candidates seem to disagree on where and when they'll debate. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Cronin's Golf Resort, a regional destination for golf, dining, and lodging in the southern Adirondacks. Details at Cronin'sGolfResort.com. And by AdirondackExplorer.org and the AdirondackAlmanac.com, seeking solutions to Adirondack Park's challenges in print and online. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A controversy that's rocking a church based in St. Lawrence County is raising questions about the role of clergy in reporting abuse. The Christian Fellowship Center, or CFC, has five locations and hundreds of members. This summer, a new advocacy group made up of former CFC members started posting stories online. The group is called CFC2, a nod to the Me Too movement. They allege a pattern of physical and sexual abuse within the church community, and they say church leaders have not been doing enough to stop it. On Sunday, CFC2 held a silent demonstration in front of the CFC Church in Potsdam to push for a state law that would require clergy to report suspected child sexual abuse to the police. Lucy Grindon reports. Abby Nye is standing in the rain outside the CFC Church in downtown Potsdam. We've got umbrellas and our signs that say make clergy mandated reporters and report child sexual abuse. Nye co-founded CFC2. She and 12 others are demonstrating in favor of a proposed law that would make clergy members mandatory child sexual abuse reporters in New York State. It's called the Child Abuse Reporting Expansion, or CARE Act. Nye grew up in CFC, and she says the CARE Act would make a big difference in the lives of kids at the church. Right now... None of the pastors at CFC are required to report child sexual abuse. And we have multiple instances over many decades of situations where they did not report child sexual abuse. A recent criminal charge has ignited controversy both inside and outside the church. 
In May, a CFC member named Sean Ferguson was charged with child sexual abuse. The felony complaint made by the New York State Police says Ferguson molested his two young daughters seven years ago. Ferguson's sister said in a tweet that CFC leaders knew about that alleged abuse five years ago and did not report it to the authorities. In a meeting with CFC members earlier this year, head CFC pastor Rick Sinclair acknowledged that he had been counseling Ferguson and that he placed Ferguson under discipline in 2017. NCPR heard a recording of that meeting but does not have consent to air it. Sinclair declined to be interviewed by NCPR, but he said in an email, quote, The particular details of my pastoral ministry and meetings with individuals are private. Some cars honk their horns as they drive past the demonstration while church is going on inside. Former CFC member Michelle Wilbur stands next to her fellow demonstrators. She wears glasses, red lipstick, and a long beaded black dress. And she holds a sign that reads, Report Child Sexual Abuse. Wilbur says her children were molested years ago while she was a CFC member and that the church knew about it. They knew and never did anything about it. It was always me, redemptive, redemptive, redemptive. Um, They never tried to protect myself. They never tried to protect my children. So um, it's sad. It's, It's really done a lot, a lot of damage. It's done a lot of damage. Wilbur eventually reported the abuse to law enforcement herself. But the case was never prosecuted because of an unrelated problem at the St. Lawrence County District Attorney's Office. I ask Wilbur how long it's been since she was at a CFC. Sorry, about seven years. About seven years. When I left, I left. Now with CFC 2, she feels like things are beginning to change. Now everything coming out with Sean Ferguson, finally, 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 people are finally, you know, listening. More than half of U.S. states require clergy to report child sexual abuse. New York is not one of them. That's largely because of lobbying from the Catholic Church, which maintains that confession is sacred and that priests should not be required to betray parishioners' confidence. Last month, CFC pastor Rick Sinclair's son-in-law, Ben Hull, wrote a letter to the editor that was published in North Country Now. Hull is a CFC deacon. He's also running as a Republican to represent Madrid in the St. Lawrence County Legislature. In his letter to the editor, he said clergy members should not be mandatory child sex abuse reporters. He wrote, quote, If a child suspects that her cleric will turn around and call the state police, she will likely be unwilling to speak a word of her abuse to her spiritual advisor, end quote. But victim advocates have long argued that requiring all responsible adults to report abuse prevents crimes and can save lives. Former CFC member Emma Massa is among the demonstrators. Massa used to counsel kids at the Jefferson County Children's Home. She says that reporting abuse can lead to positive change. I've worked with foster kids who are terribly abused. I've, I've seen so much harm that adults can do but I've also seen the good that comes out of people reporting what happened. And I've seen kids who came from a really bad background flourish and get into an environment where they excel in school and they finally feel safe. And church should be one of the places where you feel safe. Massa attended CFC regularly when she was a student at SUNY Potsdam. Now she's a medical student at the University of Vermont. She says she felt she needed to come and support CFC2 this weekend because of her own personal experience. I 
experienced um, a sexual assault in April of 2021, and I thought that the church would at least listen to me. Massa says she was raped by another person who attended the Potsdam CFC. She says she told her youth pastor what happened. The next week, she says the pastor told her that the church did not approve of her decision to go to law enforcement. Everybody was upset at me at CFC for getting the police involved. Um, They said they weren't going to give statements if the police asked um, and that they were going to keep matters within the church. A CFC pastor declined to comment when asked about this episode. CFC2 co-founder Abby Nye says keeping things within the church is just not right when it comes to sex abuse. I grew up in this community. It's a homeschool community where pastors are some of the only authorities that interact with children on a regular basis. We have families where we don't often see doctors. Our teachers are our parents. If you look at it that way, the pastor is the one of the only authority figures that could possibly notice abuse and report it. The Child Abuse Reporting Expansion Act is currently under deliberation in the New York State Senate's Rules Committee. If it becomes law, clergy will be legally required to report child sexual abuse to government authorities. Lucy Grindon, North Country Public Radio, Potsdam. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 10 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, we'll have a preview of the International Piano Competition coming to Cape Vincent this weekend. That's in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. from Lake Clear. Their music is part of our Underscore Project here at North Country Public Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Northern Light is supported by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at renewarchitecture.com. And by St. Joseph's Addiction Treatment and Recovery Centers, now providing detoxification treatment in Saranac Lake for drug or alcohol crises. 518-891-4135. National Grid predicts home heating bills for its upstate New York customers will jump by almost 40% this winter. That comes out to about $50 more per month over the last year, according to the Albany Times Union. The winter home heating season runs from November through March, In a call with reporters, National Grid said the increase is mostly driven by record wholesale natural gas prices and increased gas delivery rates. 
National Grid also expects expects monthly electric bills to rise by about $23 a month this winter. That's because most electricity in the state is made by burning natural gas. There are programs available to help residential customers reduce or eliminate their bills. The two candidates running to represent most of the North Country in Congress seem to disagree on where and when they will debate. Kara Chapman has more. Democrat Matt Castelli announced Tuesday that he has agreed to participate in three debates so far. Those would be hosted by Mountain Lake PBS and News Channel 5 in Plattsburgh and WWNY in Watertown. But Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik's campaign says she has not publicly agreed to any debates yet. Spokesperson Alex DeGrasse told the Watertown Daily Times that Stefanik is reviewing invitations. DeGrasse also took issue with the fact that there was no debate between Castelli and Whitehall Democrat Matt Putorti ahead of last month's Democratic primary. Castelli handily won that race by about 60 points. DeGrasse went on to claim that because Castelli has not announced a debate in the capital region, it shows he is unfamiliar with the district. According to the Times, Castelli said his campaign would consider other debate locations to expand their geographic reach. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. While Stefanik and Castelli are disagreeing on a debate, both are opposing a state board's recommendation to lower the current farm worker overtime threshold. Farming is the only industry in the state where overtime pay does not kick in after 40 hours. Currently, that threshold is 60 hours for farm workers. The Farm Laborers Wage Board voted 2 to 1 this week to phase the change in, changes in over a decade beginning in 2024. Republican Elise Stefanik slammed the recommendation. She said it would jeopardize the state's agriculture industry, put thousands out of work, and make New York less competitive. Her Democratic opponent, Matt Castelli, similarly said the proposal would hurt both farmers and farm workers. He urged Governor Hochul to instead empower farm workers to negotiate directly with their employers on hours and pay. Labor and civil rights advocates support the recommendation. The Hochul administration now has until late October to accept, reject, or modify it. New York State is dropping its mask requirement on public transportation. Governor Kathy Hochul made the announcement yesterday. She cited the availability of new booster shots targeting the most common strain of COVID-19. Hochul also said the state continues to make progress in terms of the COVID infection rate. We've been watching the numbers. You know, I've been talking about this for months now, saying we would get to this point when the numbers have stabilized, but also the advent of having this booster available. I think everyone should get this booster immediately. It starts taking effect and have that higher level of protection. So it's based on a stabilizing of the numbers. We haven't seen any spikes. And also people are getting back to work and they're getting back to school. State Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett said that she's confident that heading into the winter, the state will be able to contain COVID. She said she realizes some people may be confused about the number of boosters and shots you're supposed to get. If you're 12 and over and you've gotten your full primary course of vaccines, that's the first and the second shot, uh, you should uh, get a booster. It doesn't matter how many boosters you've had before. Uh, if it's been two months since your last shot, uh, you should look into getting another booster. Bassett also noted that the state continues to require masks in hospital and healthcare settings, including nursing homes. As 
a national doctor shortage and is hitting rural areas like the North Country particularly hard. A recent change in a federal visa program might help. North Country hospitals will soon be able to hire more foreign doctors for hard-to-fill positions. Celia Clark spoke with Lisa Van Natten, the head of physician recruiting at Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital in Plattsburgh. This announcement is very exciting, not only for CVPH, but the entire North Country. Uh, What it is going to allow us to do is to consider more physicians that are on a particular type of visa. And the visa is called a J-1 visa waiver. And so today for CVPH, we compete with the rest of the state on an annual basis for 30 awards of that particular visa. So it's a very competitive process. And again, you know, we're competing for basically one of those 30 slots. How many visas are you likely to be asking for? As I understand it, we will have an unlimited number of those waivers. So uh, today when we're uh, entertaining candidates, Again, we're very strategic as to which one, which which positions we will consider that type of visa, and usually it's the ones that are really tough to fill. Um, so going forward, we will be able to consider them in many uh, positions, not just one. So if indeed this is for the fiscal year 23, well, we should be able to start utilizing that program now for physicians that will be finishing training next summer. How many physician positions do you have open right now? So there are seven, I'll say, specialties or primary care, and a few of those have multiple vacancies. And what is your greatest need? That's um, a difficult question to answer because the needs, you know, they are, they are great. Um, we have needs in a number of specialties uh, and in primary care. Um, I'll mention a few, uh, gastroenterology, psychiatry, neurology, orthopedic surgery, hospitalists, anesthesiologists, uh, to name a few. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is quite a bit. On this visa, how long can a doctor stay in the country? When the physician receives uh, that J-1 visa waiver, it allows them to uh, stay and work in the United States uh, for three years uh, in a a healthcare professional shortage area. Um, And typically what we do when those physicians are um, during that three-year period, we can can apply for their green card. We can start that process. So when the three years is up, we would be close to having that green card uh, approved. And that is the ultimate goal for really all visa um, holders. What are usually the biggest obstacles for getting doctors to the North Country anyway? Sure, sure. across the board. Well, you know, um, the United States is a big area, right? And, um, you know, rural areas are not typically the most common areas that physicians are looking to practice in. They're looking to practice in big cities and, um, you know, warm climates are also quite popular for the majority of physicians. So, you know, there's only a small group of physicians that are looking for four seasons in a rural and semi-rural area. 
Lisa Van Netten is the head of uh, head of physician recruiting at Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital in Plattsburgh. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, we'll get a preview of a major event in the Thousand Islands this weekend. After that, for a long time, there was little research on Africa's largest flying bird, the Cory Buster. That changed recently. We'll meet the scientist who used solar powered tracking devices to study the Bustard's movements coming up on Bird Note. That's just ahead at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Now, we started out with some air. Areas of heavy fog this morning. I think that's pretty much burned off. Burned off by now, and uh, should be a nice day. Sunshine with highs in the seventies this afternoon. Light winds out of the south. Lows around sixty overnight tonight, and then tomorrow and Saturday, the weather service is predicting mostly sunny skies and highs in the seventies, near eighty tomorrow, and highs in the eighties on Saturday. Sunday, partly cloudy skies, highs in the low eighties. Right now in Canton. Mix of uh, morning sun and clouds, 59 degrees. Live piano music will fill the air in Cape Vincent this weekend as young musicians from around the world compete in the Thousand Islands International Piano Competition. The 19th annual event is sponsored by the Cape Vincent Arts Council and will be held under a big tent on the grounds of the Maple Grove Estate. The music along the St. Lawrence River will begin Friday morning at 9 o'clock. It's free and open to everyone and wraps up early Sunday afternoon with an awards ceremony. Artistic Director Brian Preston says the main focus of the event is to provide a venue for exceptional young pianists to perform their favorite music in a nurturing small-town atmosphere. In return, he says each year a special bond is created between Cape Vincent residents and the performers. I think one of the things that makes it the most special is that the contestants that come are able to play all of their music in general. Rarely do they have to cut anyone at all. And they play for three days and they play everything that they have brought, which is really attractive because in so many competitions, even the most important major ones, you get there, you have a preliminary round, you may even have a second preliminary round, but then people get cut. So therefore, you've had all this preparation. You don't get a chance to play the entire set of what you've brought. So that makes it very special from that. Um, the community has so much to do with it because it's very welcoming. And the other interesting thing, too, is this is pretty much open to the public in terms of audience uh, throughout the entire oh, festival. Right. It is not a, a ticketed thing. Anybody can wander in at any time during the competition and have a seat and, and just sit and enjoy. Uh, we, don't, we never shy away from people wanting to give a donation. Now, I'm looking at the schedule, and I, I kind of think this looks really intense. I mean, you start at 9 in the morning, and... I right. mean, this is like, you know, there's a lunch break, but otherwise it's it's kind of wall-to-wall piano music, right? That That's true. Um, and Saturday is even a little bit longer because they have a longer session on Saturday. So, so you're right. On the other hand, we have this wonderful uh, person who's our MC for most of it, and her name is Lynn Taylor. Actually, she and her husband, Bruce, own 
the uh, estate where this all takes place, Maple Grove Estate. And so Lynn does a beautiful job of making sure that people have a chance to stand up and stretch between. Also, the contestants all have a chance to give a little bit of information about themselves. She usually has the question of the day so that we know how they feel about certain pieces or what their life is about. Or, you know, last year, of course, they talked about the pandemic and what did you do during it? And so every day there's a little personal thing that's added. And that helps a lot with the uh, whole general feeling for the competition. Yes. And I love the fact that you're giving an audience prize. So it's not just a panel of judges, but but folks who stop by can cast a ballot. That's true. A dear friend of mine who now unfortunately no longer lives in Cape Vincent felt like she knew very little about music when she started attending the competitions. And one year she said, you know, I'm starting to get it. I really understand. And there have been quite a few years where whoever was the first prize winner was also the audience prize winner, or at least one of the top people. So so people are getting it. And of course, the adjudicators do have to look at the angle of people's accuracy and their devotion to what's written in the score, which the average person can't possibly, I mean, they're, they're not all going to music school to know all of those things. So there's that angle too, as well. Yeah. yeah. Give me an idea of, so it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, and then what the, the winner is announced Sunday afternoon. So I should just mention that Sunday is our short day. Uh-huh. Because everyone plays either a small group of music by Chopin or uh, one large work by Chopin, who is the the most loved piano composer around the world. So that that's always been the central theme of this competition. And then, yes, uh, around 1230, quarter to one, we will finish that particular level. And then the judges will meet one more time to discuss how, what they heard in the morning. And this year, I'm going to be taking it easy. I will not be adjudicating, which is just fine, <laughs> because I've done it the last two sessions that we added in 2019 and in 21. So I get a chance to relax and enjoy the music this year. And, and that will be that, yeah. Well, fantastic. I mean, I have to think that for young people, the young musicians, this is... Just such a great opportunity, as you say, to prepare for something like this and get a chance to play so much of their music yes. uh, throughout the weekend. Yeah, Yes, yeah. and it is at an unusual time of the year because yeah. many of them have not been with their regular teachers. But in so many cases, what I think happens is they plan these programs before they leave the conservatory or school of music or whatever it is that they're attending, and then... They work on it throughout the summer, perhaps with another teacher or with with that teacher. Everybody's a little different situation. And then they come together and, and see how it all is going to go in September. Brian Preston is artistic director of the Thousand Islands International Piano Competition this weekend. The 19th annual event starts tomorrow morning at 9 under a big tent on the grounds of the Maple Grove Estate in Cape Vincent. Okay, well, from piano music along the St. Lawrence to Celtic music in historic Opera House, coming up Sunday night, 7 o'clock, you're invited to hear the group Conla take the stage at Pickens Hall in Hubleton. This uh, quintet of Irish musicians will play some of the finest traditional and contemporary Irish music featuring vocal harmonies, pipes, drums, harps, and more. 
Just the Irish Quintet Conlock performing uh, Sunday night, 7 o'clock at Pickens Hall in Hubleton. And time now is 29 minutes past 8. Uh, Monica, I think that's pretty much it for the show. That is <laughs> it for the show for the day. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. We'll take a look at the drought in Colorado. Understanding drought in the West is hard. The Colorado woman is explaining the problem to a new generation of water users to debunk misinformation that can easily spread during a crisis, and she's using TikTok to do that. We'll hear more on this story coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Keep up with NCPR throughout the day on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us, news at ncpr.org. Our theme music is by Danny Thomas. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Be well.